Welcome to episode 1618 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hello. Huge congressional baseball game news this week. I don't know if you saw it. Everyone's talking about it. Cedric Richmond, the Babe Ruth of the congressional baseball game, will no longer be playing in the game. He is a congressman, Democratic congressman from Louisiana, and he announced this week that he is resigning from Congress before the new administration takes over to join the administration as a senior advisor to Joe Biden or assistant to the president and director of public engagement. So that means he will not be able to play in future congressional baseball games, and that's huge news if you care about those games because he is the Babe Ruth of the congressional baseball game he I'll, I'll give you his stats here he has played in nine congressional baseball games I believe the Democrats have won eight of those maybe eight of the last nine largely because of his dominance so he ends his career with a 615 730 1038 batting line and an 8 no pitching record with a 2.45 ERA eight complete games and 66 strikeouts in 60 innings pitched. I think the games are seven innings, and that's uh, your your basic 2.6 wins above replacement, as calculated by 538's Nathaniel Rakich, who joined me and Meg for an episode, episode 1396 last year. So he's calculated war for the congressman, and uh, Richmond had 2.6 in nine games. That's uh, what? Uh, that's a 47 war pace over 162 games so pretty good there's some oddities in that that line like the there's just a real shocking lack of of walks in his batting line right he <laughs> yeah you, you said he's hitting six six something six fifteen and only a, a seven seven thirty on base on base you you'd think if someone were hitting six fifteen you'd walk that person a lot yeah. more and then and then uh he eight eight complete games but but only a strikeout per inning yeah, a little more, but not much more. Yeah, which also feels low. That feels low for the best pitcher at at any kind of low level of mm-hmm. of because you know this this spread of talent is is so great. The lower you get, I mean, I certainly remember. I know that the congressional league is is not my little league, but the the best the you know the Babe Ruth of of uh, of a youth league will strike out you know two and a quarter batters per inning. Yeah, and so uh, so that's a sort of interesting as well. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's a a contact-oriented league. I don't know. Maybe he's pitching to contact. And and you can understand why he wouldn't want to take walks. Maybe they're trying to walk him and he's just swinging at everything because he's batting 615 with a 1,000-plus slugging percentage. The other thing is how do you you create a replacement level when the population of players to choose from changes so much every two years? Like every two years, there's a new election and you might have... 200 and 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 30 people to choose from or you might have 170 players to choose from so you would think replacement level would just be like like outrageously (laughs) swinging from from one one side to the other right yeah i forget how nathaniel did that but we could go back and listen to that interview or read his article about it i assume he figured out some way but yeah richmond he was a college baseball player he was a pitcher for morehouse and so that's why he was so good it's not like he was you know 
Jim Bunning or something. Like he's he's not a professional pitcher in the past, and yet he totally he's totally also dominated. Old. He's he's not. I, I I imagined that he. You know, I I guessed like thirty seven, and then I look him up, and he's uh, what? He's almost fifty, isn't he? Almost fifty. Yeah, I guess uh, when he started. Well, yeah, he was born in seventy three. So uh-huh. yeah, when he started, I guess he was still in his thirties, probably, and that's uh, probably still pretty young for that game, where the average age has to be pretty old. In so. my yeah, in my softball league, I've mentioned this before, but the only thing you needed to know was was age. The like the correlation mm-hmm. between age and performance was like a correlation of like 0.98 and so you might have been the worst athlete in your high school but if you were like 24 on a team of 40 year olds you were the fat you were the pinch runner you were the you were very good you yeah. play a premium position and there are younger congress people although i guess there are many older con- and then also this is what this is the senate as well too so that you yeah. have a median age that's <laughs> right. even higher when you include the senate and probably because of like the the prestige and longevity of senate careers maybe you even have a, a disproportionate number of senators on the team so yeah i guess uh 47 is probably younger than the median yeah and certainly so- 38 when he began his right. career so he said, the good news is I get to retire 8-0, and then he downplayed his baseball dominance. I'm quoting from a, a tweet here saying he didn't need to be Hank Aaron or Willie Mays to do well in the game because he was playing against congressional Republicans. Which, yeah, it is a little mean, but <laughs> accurate. Yeah. <laughs> and he said that ex-NFLer Colin Allred from Texas could uh. be a replacement pitcher for the Democratic team, so they'll still have some talent in the post-Richmond era. Okay. All right. All right. Well, end of an era. (laughs) There was actual big baseball news this week, and we can talk about that, too. Want to talk a little bit about Robinson Cano's PD suspension, but the bigger news probably, or at least the earlier news, was Theo Epstein stepping down as the Cubs president of baseball operations. After, what, nine years in Chicago, he had one year left on his contract, and he decided not to serve. He is uh, walking away, and it sure sounds like he will just not be in baseball for a year. Of course, the teams that have openings, the Mets and the Phillies, will be trying desperately to recruit him, I am sure. But he seems committed to taking a summer off, the the first, I guess, summer of his adult life off. He's been doing these jobs for a long time. Sounds like he wanted to walk away and recharge a little bit. And he said that he does have another act in him with a baseball team. So this is coming on the heels of the news that Billy Bean might be walking away from the A's or from baseball management altogether. That's still not a done deal as far as I've heard. But in this case, Theo is not swearing off baseball as it seems like Billy Bean would be to work in other sports or maybe some ownership-related role. And maybe that's what Theo will gravitate to. But sounds like he is not done with baseball. He's uh, significantly younger than Bean, of course. But this is an interesting move because... We have talked in the past about what Theo could possibly do next. In fact, I think we may have talked about it multiple times. I know way back on episode 856, we talked about what Theo's next career move would be. And this was actually in April of 2016. So it was before the Cubs won the World Series. But we got a listener email that said, okay, if the Cubs win the World Series, then how can Theo top that? What would he do? And I listened to a little of it and we were talking about, well, he could be commissioner. 
owner. He could go into ownership. He could walk away from baseball entirely. He could become a, a mainstream celebrity in some way as opposed to a sports celebrity. He could write a book. He could become a, a business person or a guru of some sort. And now I guess he's facing those decisions. I I think there was also an episode of the Ringer MLB show right after the Cubs won the World Series where we drafted like teams that Theo should take over next or something or or where should Theo go to win another World Series because I remember talking about like what would be the biggest challenge that he could take on now after ending the curses in Boston and Chicago? Should he try to end the drought in Cleveland? Should he do it with a small market team and prove that he could do that? I think maybe we came down or I came down on the side of he should go win with the Rockies. He should try to win in Coors Field and be the first person to do that. Anyway, we'll see if he does any of that. But for now, he is just probably going to be out of baseball for a little bit and uh, get to, I don't know, be around his family and read a book and take a breather and assess what he wants to do next. I, I think politics was another possibility that we talked about for him in the past. So I'm curious to see what his next act will be. Uh-huh. Yeah. I guess uh, we've already discussed what it could or should be. I think yeah, when he when he tells when he tells us what it is, I think it'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I guess I'm, you know, interested in why he decided to do this now and and it seems like there're a lot of good reasons why this would have been an okay time to do that. A He's proven everything that you can prove, really, as a leader of a baseball operations department. He's won, you know, the two has most— he, though? Well, has I he? guess— I mean, I'm not <laughs> saying that he hasn't—he's uh, a Hall of Famer. He's had a great yeah, career. He's, right. he's, he's one of the—you know, he's he's one of the three kind of GM types from this era that will, will probably be most historically significant. And fanta- everybody would love to have him. Fantastic. But, I mean, it's not like he broke the game. It's not like his team wins 113 games every year. And, no. like, well, there's just—it's like, not like there weren't problems for him to solve. And, uh, you know, t- technically speak, I get technically speaking, the Cubs since 2016 have been kind of disappointing, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's not like they collapsed or anything. And we've talked before on the show about how the trajectory, it, it's almost like they won the World Series too soon. They got to the climax before the buildup. And then it was like, well, how do you top that? This incredibly memorable World Series win, all you can hope to do is to keep making it back year after year and basically turn into the Dodgers. And they haven't done that. They haven't made the playoffs every year they haven't had deep playoff runs the teams have kind of gradually gotten less dominant it seemed like the cubs were maybe a little bit behind on the player development revolution and had to overhaul their approach to player development over the last year or two so they've hardly been a huge disaster post 2016 but i think it's fair to say that it's been a little bit of a letdown given the core that they had and the perhaps slightly inflated or unreasonable hopes or expectations that they would turn into a dynasty and maybe that's part of it i don't know if part of it is just that he i don't know didn't have the the same motivation or energy to tackle the current problems or do another rebuild which might be in the offing here i just mean you know he's won the two titles that were there for the taking that were really the most prestigious or or historically significant 
And I could see why after that you might feel like, well, I I could win another one, I guess. (laughs) You know, that would be nice, but it's not going to give you the same buzz as the first one did. Maybe that's always the case, but particularly in his case, where you're just going around being the the curse breaker, how can you possibly top that, especially if you're just sticking with the same team? Yeah. It's interesting because for I don't think that you would ever phrase achievements in the same way or frame them in the same way for players that that you that you just did for for Theo. Like a player would never start a career saying my job is to do two discrete things and then like then search for a third thing to do. Like you mm-hmm. wouldn't say like my job is to hit five home runs in a game or my my goal is to hit five home runs in a game and win a World Series. And if I do those two things, oh. Well, now what do I do? Like, it's much more about maintenance of a career um, and about recognizing that that the challenge is, is never never ending. Like, they, you win the World Series, but then they just restart. Like, by by definition, they just have a new World Series for you to win the next year. So there's, there's a constant, like, kind of river of challenges facing you. And so I wouldn't think, like, I guess you could say, like, in... The same way that a person who writes like a best-selling novel might feel this artificial pressure to 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 do something new with their next novel or their next thing that they're going to do, that that's I think largely artificial. Like I I don't think that there are many other places in the sport where you would set the goals so like I don't know so well defined and then feel the need to like improve upon those goals. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, so I guess that like, Theo Epstein might be the only the only person in the entire sport who we would frame success around that notion, and I don't know that I doubt that he looks at it that way. Right, and I think he's talked before about the the Bill Walsh theory of leadership, right, and how you you shouldn't stay in one place more than ten years, or it'll sap some energy or, or creativity from you, and. This is kind of what he did in Boston, too. He he left with one year left on his contract, I think, after having been there for one or two more years. But it's the same sort of thing here. And I, I think he had sort of forecasted that he might not stay with the Cubs beyond next season. So it was something of a surprise that he walked away when he did. But also not really because of the, the situation that the Cubs find themselves in and also just all of baseball finds itself in right now. Like, I think part of this is that his longtime second-in-command, Jed Hoyer, is right there. So it was an easy transition for Hoyer to take over, and they're probably on the same page about a lot of things. And he said at least that as the Cubs are entering perhaps a time of transition, it might make sense for the person who's there for the long haul to have the number one say in those decisions. And also, the Cubs, like a lot of teams, even including the Dodgers, who you'd think are doing as well as any team possibly could right now, they announced that they're laying off a lot of employees on Thursday. And the Cubs have already done that. They've laid off tons and tons of employees. And Ricketts has really tightened the purse strings in the past couple of years to the extent that, you know, we're reading stories about how the Cubs can't go get a reliever or whatever because uh, ownership said no. So 
that could have been an issue with Bean too. Of course, he's been working under those kinds of constraints his whole career. But when there are layoffs and then you know ownership issues with paying minor leaguers or paying scouts or whatever it is, then when you're at that exalted point where you're just you know a celebrity or as much as a, a baseball executive can be, you might just feel like, well, I I put up with this in the past. You know, I was okay working within these constraints then, but. I don't need this now or, you know, this is just not worth the the headache or worth the work to me. It's also just a job that requires a ton of time and attention and labor. And you might imagine that as fascinating as it could be for you, as challenging as it could be, you might get burned out eventually. I mean, he's been doing this job or basically this job since... uh, I mean, you know, almost two decades and he was in uh, front offices before that. So you could see why you just might need to rest and recharge at a certain point. And it's not like if you're Theo Epstein, you can't step away from for a year and uh, not come back and have everyone wanting you. And I'm just looking at uh, previous discussions that we've had on the podcast about Theo and Back on episode 1077, Jeff and I were talking about something that had come out about Theo Epstein reportedly working 18-hour days, which, uh, you know, maybe he's wired that way. But after doing that for decades, maybe at a certain point, uh, that just becomes too much for you. So you could see how, you know, if the Cubs kind of have their hands tied, if this core that he put together is sort of splintering now, then you might say, well, I don't want to embark on this under these circumstances with the pandemic and not knowing what our budget is and are we going to have fans in the stands? You know, do I want to be the one who has to figure out how to trade Chris Bryant or, you know, resign people or or whatever it is? It it just, it seems like a headache, you know, A, a headache that a lot of people would be happy to have. But if you're Theo and you've been able to pick your spot and, you know, you've built this team into a, a World Series winner, do you want to stick around for a, a whole nother cycle in the same place? I, I get it. Yeah, I don't I'm think saying. we need to, uh, we don't need to overthink this. There are literally millions of reasons that a person right. in his position would choose to not do it next year, like literally millions. And they yeah. all make sense. And uh, we don't know them. Yes, and and he cited his salary, you know, $10 million salary as part of the consideration in that I guess a lot of people from that organization are being let go. And I don't know if there was some some guilt there or whether he felt like, you know, freeing up his salary would help retain some people. Not that like, you know, whether we have to pay Theo or not should be the determining factor. I'm, I'm sure the, the Cubs could make it work if they really wanted to. But perhaps personally, he felt some burden there. So maybe that was part of it, too. The other interesting thing, and this was something that I think Hannah Kaiser from Yahoo asked him about, she said, Theo Epstein said he was interested in a baseball job that allows him to help address some of the more existential threats to the game. So I asked him what he thinks those are, and then she quotes his response as, It is the greatest game in the world, but there are some threats to it because of the way the game is evolving, and I take some responsibility for that because the executives like me, who have spent a lot of time using analytics and other measures to try to optimize individual and team performance, have unwittingly had, you know, a negative impact on the aesthetic value of the game and the entertainment value of the game. I mean, clearly, you know, the strikeout rate's a little out of control, and we need to find a way to get more action in the game, get the ball in play more often, allow players to show their athleticism some more, and give the fans 
demands more of what they want. So this is what Meg and I talked about on the last episode with Patrick Dubuque and Dan Saborski about the effect that Sabermetrics has had on the game. And here's Theo echoing that and saying he feels some responsibility for that. And I think Joe Posnanski just wrote about this too, this idea that Epstein is kind of, you know, a a traditionalist and a, a storyteller and he doesn't like a lot of the trends in the game, but had to accelerate them because of what his job was. And I think Joe has suggested both in the past and in the present that he would be sort of a a good, you know, fixing baseball czar, like figuring out how to get baseball back to whatever the ideal is if you subscribed to the idea that it is not currently at its ideal, which evidently Epstein does. So I don't know if... uh, commissioner is going to be open anytime soon or whether he would want the hassle that comes with that but it seems like he is motivated by the idea of trying to be on the side that is uh fixing baseball as he sees it rather than sort of exploiting it maybe to the detriment of the entertainment value Mm -hmm. all right well i suppose that's all i have to say about theo it's uh Very significant because of how he has changed just the whole course of baseball history, really. But uh, it seemed like this move was coming, and maybe it came a a year earlier than some people had anticipated, but not a total shock. So I'm sure that we will talk again about Theo Epstein many times in the future. All right, so the other big news was Robinson Cano having his second suspension for PD use, which means that he is out of commission for an entire season, 162-game suspension. The first suspension a couple years ago was for a diuretic that is often used as a masking agent, and I think it was reported by TJ Quinn that Probably there was evidence that he was actually using it that way in order for that suspension to go ahead, but he was not directly linked to a a certain substance. This time he was. This time he tested positive for a steroid, an old school steroid, Stanozolol, Winstrol, it goes by a couple names, and this was, I think, why it was somewhat baffling that it happened this way because this is a steroid that has been banned by the Olympics since like the 70s or something this is you know what Ben Johnson used in 88 this is out of vogue like this is not a designer PED that you can use to try to elude a positive test this is you know a very very detectable one and so it's kind of confounding how and why this happened and TJ Quinn tweeted, and this is the ESPN investigative reporter, he tweeted, it's one thing to use after you've been busted. It's another to use stenozolol, a drug that is insanely detectable. It defies any logic. Can't wait to hear this explanation. He then continued, I can almost guarantee there's going to be a whale of a story behind this. Cano is rich enough to afford drugs and regimens that would easily escape detection. Taking stenozolol is bonkers. Poor kids take it, not bazillionaires. So... There's part of me that's uh, disappointed, I guess, not to make it like a say-it-ain't-so-Cano kind of thing, but Cano came up when I was still a fan of the team that he was playing for. I was still in high school at the time, and he was a a really exciting player. That was an era when the Yankees had gone a little while without a homegrown star, you know, being developed, and here came Cano, and he was so smooth and just an all-around good player who quickly blossomed into a star. 
And, you know, I'm almost more disappointed that he cheated in such a obvious (laughs) counterproductive way. (laughs) You know, I'm almost as, uh, I guess, miffed about that as I am about the cheating itself. But it stinks because, you know, this is his legacy now. I I think after the first suspension, he would have had a tough time getting into the hall. But now it's just uh, out of the question now that he's a a two-time offender in the post-PD rules era. I just don't think there's any way he could get in. And people will, of course, question his whole career and all of his accomplishments because he is now a a two-time offender here. And it's funny, T.J. Quinn said, you know, I look forward to the explanation. Well, as we record here on Thursday afternoon, you know, more than a day after this news came out, there hasn't been one yet. Cano hasn't said anything, which is unusual. Because usually when a player tests positive, there's the the statement that comes out. And, you know, usually it's, uh, I'm going to fight this or I fought this or, you know, I, I took a tainted supplement or I don't know how this happened and somehow it, it happened. But this time, nothing. And, you know, maybe because there's just nothing to say. I mean, he said all of that last time. And if that's your excuse the first time, like uh, I wasn't careful enough or I I took something I shouldn't have, you can't really use that twice (laughs) because no one is going to be forgiving of it twice. So it's sort of sad and and disappointing and also confusing that he would get caught multiple times and and get caught using this at this point in his career. Yeah, the the sort of galaxy brain positive way to think about it i mean obviously not not a positive way to think about this but if you want to feel like a little bit good instead of like bad like you feel bad so i'm gonna offer you a way to maybe feel slightly good that there was there's always been and particularly well i mean i particularly when free agency came around but i think that this sort of attitude uh has always existed that like oh well once you know when you give players you know a hundred million dollars they're going to like lose their motivation. Like that was like one of the fears that was offered by like owners and and writers when free agency was coming around and when salaries started to get real high and when draft picks were starting to get paid, um, you know, not close to their market value, but but more like life-changing money and all that. There was the idea that like, well, ball players, like it was was really a, a very sort of cynical and and like, um, I don't know, reductive way of thinking about them as though they're only motivated by money that like the only reason that Willie Mays ever bothered to play ball was because, you know, he, he was he was getting paid. And right. I mean, I guess in in some sense, like probably like if they weren't getting paid, then probably, you know, ball players wouldn't play ball. But it implies that every home run is like the market at work and that you have to yeah. like like give players the financial incentive to do it but not too much financial incentive because then they won't be motivated anymore anyway yeah the point is that like whatever sort of somewhat kind of i don't know a cynical or or like um you know material motive that you would give robinson cano at, at this point in his career it's 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 clearly not money because not only and not just he has a lot of money but but he's under contract for a long he's right. under contract beyond any any you know any yeah. year that he's two years to, after the coming year yeah exactly yeah. he is unlikely to be uh, you know he's not a an, an impending free agent he doesn't mm-hmm. have a, his next contract is not on the line he probably won't play after this contract pretty good chance you know he he isn't desperate to win a, a world series he's won a world series mm-hmm. he's not on the cusp of being kicked out of the league 
league. It's not like he's playing for, you know, like like uh, you know, his last gasp to 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 wear the uniform. I mean, he was going to wear the uniform for a few more years. So, you take away all those sort of kind of obvious somewhat superficial self-interest and what you're left with is that he really wanted to play baseball well and he didn't want to be embarrassed. And like yeah. in a in a way, uh that is reassuring. That that is really the core like that's the that's the mitochondria in these ball players i don't know mitochondria mitochondria is the thing that like produces energy in the cell mm-hmm. right yes. yeah and so like at the core you drill down and what's providing the energy for for these baseball players careers they go out there they're in front of a bunch of people and they really want to play well and they don't want to be embarrassed yeah. And and so presumably, and, and barring new information about like Cano getting uh, tricked into this or something like that, presumably Cano just like it it's it was that's what was driving him. He wanted to play baseball well. Yeah. No self interest other than he wanted to play baseball well. And if the Cano example is not the encouraging example, but you can extrapolate from that 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 is really what's happening in a baseball game. These baseball players are out there and they are what you thought they were. They are what you hoped they were, which is people on a team trying to play well. Mm-hmm. And it's as pure as that. So uh, again, like Cano is like, you can still feel bad about the Cano example. And that, the you know, like it's always a, a, a sort of a little bit, anytime someone gets popped, you you have that like on the one hand, oh good, the testing's working. On the other hand, you know, oh, oh, bad. It's it's still part of the game. But mm-hmm. in a larger sense, it's a reminder that ballplayers from, you know, from age eight to, you know, age 40 who have three hundred million dollars, they all basically want the thing that you want them to want, which is to play baseball well. Like that's the motive. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. I agree with that. And, and that did cross my mind also. <laughs> I was trying to put a positive spin on it in my own mind. Really, I, I think I'm disappointed you know less because i'm i'm let down by cano or or like you know he he fell short of my my standards for baseball players uh, character or something but because this is all anyone will remember about him now probably you know he'll be robinson cano the the two-time pd positive tester and that's a shame because uh i really enjoyed just his career and and his play and now it's just you know the way that i think manny ramirez is remembered that way i think cano will be remembered that way too and it will kind of overshadow his skill as a player and of course a lot of people will say well his skill as a player was that he was juicing or something you know a lot of people think that and i guess i'm more in the camp that doesn't draw the direct relation to there where if a a good player tests positive i don't immediately conclude well he was only good because he was taking the thing that made him test positive which is you know possible of course but i just tend not to make that uh, immediate connection certainly it may have helped him and certainly it may have helped him age better you know because that's one of the things that's been notable about his career is that he has remained pretty productive even at advanced ages. You know, he's 38 now. He was a a very good hitter in the shortened 2020 season at age 37. He hit really well. Well, maybe he hit really well because he was taking the thing that caused him to test positive here. But you're right, like he's on the opposite end of the spectrum of the person you would think would have the most motivation to take something, you know, like the 
the person who's on the fringes, on the margins, just trying to stay in the league, trying to get that big contract. Cano has the big contract. He has been a superstar. He has no known reason to do this except that he wants to be as good at baseball as he possibly can. And it's just strange that he is so bad at cheating, I guess, or that having been caught before, he didn't realize, hey, I better be careful (laughs) not take the most obvious thing that I could take. Like, the only thing I could think is that, like, there was reporting by Joel Sherman that PED testing was dramatically reduced this year. Like, evidently, PED testing didn't happen at all during the baseball lockdown prior to the start of uh, summer camp. And then it was really reduced throughout the season, too, because it was just hard to get, like, the test samples. Like, the the lab that they used to do the PED test was, I think, doing the COVID tests. And also, like, you know, it was hard to get testers to go into these places because uh, they weren't essential personnel or whatever. So... There were fewer tests performed. A lot of players were tested once or didn't get tested at all. So there was still some threat that they would get tested. but And it wasn't like publicly announced that there wouldn't be testing or anything. But I think it was pretty clear that uh, testing was not happening at the same rate. And so, you know, maybe he figured, well, I can get away with it now and I need it at this age. Who knows? And if this had happened earlier in his career, if he were still a young player, I'd be more sympathetic coming up in the Dominican Republic. There has been and to some extent perhaps still is so much pressure on kids there to take PEDs, to attract the attention of major league teams. And with the whole Busconi training system that's set up there, it has reportedly been pretty prevalent at times. And there's a lot of financial incentive and some substances available over the counter. I know MLP has recently started to put some programs in place to try to cut down on that, but Cano is far removed from the point in his career when he faced that pressure and had those incentives. We'll never know exactly what the the motivations were here, but it's really like the the way this happened, you just kind of have to scratch your head and and say, how could you allow this to happen? Like, if you're going to cheat, be smarter about it. So anyway... We'll see how the the Mets, you know, for the Mets, I guess it's not really the worst news, even though Cano is still a productive player. He was in line to make, you know, $24 million, almost all of which would be paid by the Mets, I think all but $4 million. And of course, it seemed like they were about to be in spending mode anyway. And so now with that money freed up and, and a spot in the lineup freed up. They have a lot of options, you know, they could shift Jeff McNeil back over there or they could just uh, play other guys in the infield that they already have or they could go after LeMayhew or or something, you know, I don't think it's a a devastating blow to them and maybe in one way they're almost uh, relieved by it. So I'll be curious to see if Cano even plays out the rest of his contract with the Mets or whether they just kind of cut ties because, you know, after sitting out a year and uh, assuming that he will be clean next time he plays or at least maybe that he would continue to cheat, who knows? Maybe they'll just say, well, we don't even want to hang on to 39-year-old Robinson Cano because this regime didn't trade for him anyway. So, you know, the the Kelnick trade looks even worse now, I suppose. But this uh, Cohen administration 
they weren't the ones who made that trade, so they don't really have to be bound by it, and maybe they'll just wipe the slate clean. But it's kind of ironic because I, I think one reason why that trade happened was that Cano was still productive. Like, you know, he was not the centerpiece of that trade. That was about Kelnick. It was about Edwin Diaz. But the fact that Cano had kind of beaten the aging curve up to that point for the most part, I think enabled that to, to still be a trade that was workable without the Mets paying all of his salary, which they wouldn't because it was the Wilpons. So anyway, here we are. So that's Cano. Do you want to do a stat blast? Sure. All right. They'll take a data set certify something like ERA minus or OBS plus. And then they'll tease out some interesting tidbit, discuss it at length, and analyze it for us in amazing ways. Here's today's step last. All right, Ben, who's the first loogie? Oh, boy, I don't know. Who do you, who is the first person you think? Or maybe, maybe loogie's too strong a word. Who's the first lefty specialist in your head? Who do you, who jumps, who, who do you, you have to answer. You're <laughs> on the weakest link. Yeah. And that's the question. Jesse Orozco. No, Jesse Orozco, <laughs> no, Jesse Orozco was a lefty reliever. But I wouldn't say that he was a lefty specialist during his his best years. And uh, by the time he became a lefty specialist, I would say that he was not the first. And so uh, I understand why that would be a, an answer. He is maybe the most lefty reliever pitcher that, that I can think of as well, yeah. but not the first and not originally a specialist. So I got to wondering about this, this question. And so I uh, went looking for the first lefty specialist and... If you want to talk about the first, like, really, really extreme, like, lefty specialist where, you know, you're talking about someone who's pitching half as many innings as outings, I think that that probably would be John Candelaria in the early 90s. If you wanted to talk about the first, like, kind of lefty to regular, like, to come in for one batter, you might go to Ed Vandenberg of the Mariners in the early 80s. But I think that neither of those is the answer because it just it feels to me like you have to go back a little bit earlier and to to find the first. Like obviously before those players pitched, uh, if someone else was a lefty specialist, they would have been the first. So I looked through the the it, it I looked further back than this, but it quickly became clear that the answer was going to be someone between like 1960 and, and 1985 or so, like somewhere along that line that it changed. There's nobody before 1960 who fits into that role. And by the 80s, there's like kind of a bunch of of burgeoning usages of that. So from 60 to, to basically 1980, we'll say, I looked at players whose platoon advantages were at or near 50%. Well, I guess I looked at all relievers, all left-handed relievers. And I looked at their platoon advantage, their innings per outing or batter's face per outing, and their number of, of one batter appearances. And I think there are five kind of answers, and I'll just go through those kind of quickly explain why they're an answer and something interesting about them. So the five are, the first one is Joe Horner, who he is on the list because like by this quick and dirty metric that I came up with, his 1976 season was the loogiest season 
ever by that point. He had a platoon advantage about 55% of the time, which was the third highest platoon advantage in that stretch. And what's really kind of notable about him is that he had like four years in a row where he ranks pretty high on this list for four different teams. So that either suggests that he really had a clear identity of pitcher who was a one out lefty, or it means that that was not a valued skill and that teams were constantly getting rid of him. This was late in his career. He had been a relief ace earlier in his career, like a real relief ace earlier in his career. And then this was the tail end. And he was just kind of hanging on without a lot of success, but he was being used as a loogie. I think that if nobody came before him, he would be the answer, but I think other people came before him. He is very, very interesting. He has a very interesting career and and life, but I'll just note one detail about him. According to his Sabre bio by Brian Cooper, late in his career, Joe Horner hit a batter with a pitch. The batter charged him. Horner punched him in the face, uh, landed the punch, and there was a brawl. And then totally unrelated to that, he never threw another pitch in the majors. That that happened to be his final batter in his final appearance in his final season. His final act as a major leaguer was <laughs> punching a guy in the face. So that's Joe Horner. So that's one answer. A second answer is a guy named Jack Spring. And Spring is the opposite. He is not quite as clear of a loogie, but he's probably the earliest on this list. So in 1963 with the Angels, he had more outings than innings. And this is, I think, this is the first time that ever happened in any substantial usage for a pitcher. And so if you think about a loogie, a lefty one-out guy, what defines that pitcher is partly that he he only faces lefties, but it's, it's really that his outings are short, that he's brought in not for an inning or multiple innings, but for a batter. And so in, in that sense, I guess Spring was was that. He faced half lefties, which is the first pitcher I found who had the platoon advantage at least half the time, the first left-handed pitcher, I should say. And he definitely predates Horner. He's not my favorite answer, even though he ranks high on my list, because he wasn't that good. The Angels used him this way, and then they traded him, and then another, you know, he he got traded again. He was quickly out of the league. So it isn't as though he made a career out of this usage. It was really maybe just one year in which his limitations reflected his usage more than that his team really saw a strength in that. And an interesting thing about him is that he was one of the managers who managed the Portland Mavericks of the battered bastards of baseball fame. Mm-hmm. All right, so... Joe Horner and Jack Spring. The third one is a guy named Paul Lindblad. And he's on this list of five because he had 16 one-batter games in 1970, which is the most that any pitcher had ever had at that point. And it would be the most that any pitcher would have for about a a decade more. So he really was a one-batter pitcher more than anybody else had ever been. His platoon rate, is actually kind of low. He's like about a, I think about a 40% platoon advantage, which is kind of low, but that's partly because the the rate of left-handed hitters throughout the league was very low in that year. Mm. And I got to looking at the rate of lefty batters and that era, there was like a five-year period, six-year period where it was quite low. But I noticed another thing, which is that in World War II, the rate of left-handed batters plummeted. It was in the years leading up to World War II, 36, 36, 35, 35, 35. And then 1943, when a bunch of major leaguers were gone, it was 31. And then in 1944, when a ton of major leaguers were gone, it was 24. So that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah. 
that like when the war came and all the good players left, they were stuck with righties. They were stuck with a bunch of righties. There's something, there's an interesting article in where the lefties all went during the war. Anyway, Paul Lindblad, 1970 was the year that he had those 16 one batter games. So he's right in the middle. And I think that's a fine answer. But that was also the only year that he was really used in that extreme way. Um, so I don't love that answer. The fourth is Bill Henry. Do you remember Bill Henry? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, Bill Henry, famous on this podcast and, and elsewhere for having the imposter who yes. pretended to be him mm-hmm. later in life. Uh, so we've already talked a lot about Bill Henry. Yes. Bill Henry was an ace closer early in his career. But later in his career with the 1966 Giants, He had 35 games and 22 innings, which is the lowest innings per outing rate that anybody would have until 1990. So he was like a quarter century ahead of the trend. And that's impressive, but it was only 35 games. It wasn't even a full season. And small samples can lie in in all sorts of different categories. I feel like Bill Henry wasn't used this way for long enough to really believe that he was a dedicated lefty. On the other hand, his manager that year was Herman Franks. And Herman Franks was later credited with inventing the ninth inning closer role with Bruce Souter about a decade later. So Mm. it would make sense that Herman Franks' bullpen trailblazer might have also been a bullpen trailblazer for this other specialized bullpen role. So I think Bill Henry is maybe, I think he is maybe the person who gets this title more than anybody else from this era and let's see i have an article i think there's an article in the hardball times that called bill henry the first loogie at one point so that's a fine answer and the fifth answer this is i know this is the long stat blast but the fifth answer is a pitcher named jack delora and he's actually who kind of got me uh, along this way because jack Delora was on the Mets in 1969 and then he got selected by Houston in the Rule 5 draft in before 1970. And so this is a quote from his Sabre bio. Instead, the Houston Astros took Deloro in the Rule 5 draft. The Astros were in need of a left-handed relief pitcher for the 1970 season. So Houston personnel director Tal Smith fed scouting reports on 300 lefties available in the draft into a computer in their business office, and DeLauro came out on top. Smith told the Sporting News that, quote, the value to the scouting department is in getting a 30-second answer in summary to evaluations that done manually used to take all winter. Last winter was the first time we used it, and we used it for all positions and angles for ready references on trades and deals. And I don't think that you've ever written about this example no. of an, a proto-computer for That's a for long a time ago. No. Front office. Yeah, so 1970 Astros computer telling them who to pick and they picked jack deloro and he was he was the first reliever ever with like a really crazy ratio of innings to games other than henry and as we talked about henry only appeared 25 times deloro had 42 outings that year he only threw 33 innings and so that really is a modern lefty usage and that was the lowest rate really until Candelaria in the, in the you know, and, and others in the late 80s and early 90s. So Deloro was really, I think, ahead of, of, of almost everybody except Bill Henry by that measure. He also had the second highest number of one-out games. He doesn't rank quite as high on my dumb spreadsheet because, again, 1970 was a year where there were very few left-handed hitters. So he ended up having to face a bunch of right-handed 
batters anyway. But he just basically walked them all. Like his split is like walk all the righties and then face all the lefties, which is also fairly loogie-ish. And so Jack Deloro is is the answer that I kind of like. Unfortunately, let's say that he did create that role or that he was the first in that role. That was the only year he did it. He was out of the league after that because this wasn't a role that was was well accepted everywhere else. Nobody else was looking for loogies. Even yeah. his own team didn't really want a loogie. And so that was his final season. He was fine that year, but he was uh, he did not get another chance with the Astros or anyone else. And that was his last appearance in the majors. And he later, uh, this is from his Sabre bio, he later told Maury Allen, Quote, I left baseball with a bitter taste. I guess I think about those days too much. I was used. I was only 29 when I was finished with baseball. I didn't have anything to do, any place to go, any training for anything else. I never made any money in baseball, so it was all very hard for me. I got this job at uh, Sporting Goods Franchise and became the manager a few years back. We're all right now. I have a nice house on a lakefront site. We're comfortable. I wanted more of the game. I didn't want to leave so early. I wished I could have gotten along better with the managers and the front office people. Hardly a day goes by that I don't think about something relating to the 1969 Mets. I guess I, I always will. And so, in a way, if he had been the first loogie, you know, if he, I guess if he had been the thousandth loogie, it's quite possible that Jack Delora would have pitched into his like late 30s. Like mm-hmm. he had the skill set of a pitcher who would hang on for 10 more years these days. But back then, he was just too ahead of his time, and the the role hadn't caught on. And uh, he might have been partly responsible for helping create the role, but it was just too soon. And now things have come full circle and no one wants Lukies anymore anyway. I guess mm-hmm. uh, the Lukies still alive to some extent. The the three batter minimum didn't completely drive out the Lukies who were still around, but even the Lukies who were still around were not really the, the Randy Choate extreme Lukies. Uh, those had kind of already been on the way out to some extent. So Oliver Perez is, is uh, still with us, fortunately, somehow. But I looked at the Lugies from 2019 and then at 2020, and it's not a big difference, to be honest. Yeah, like most of them the, were still Most employed. of them are still yeah. around. Most of mm-hmm. them still... The, the difference in the ratio of batters they faced wasn't, wasn't that great. I had a theory that this would affect fringy righties more than it would end up affecting loogies uh, i have not looked at whether that was the case but it seems like the loogies they have to face a, a, an extra right-handed batter oftentimes but you know you now now we've got the pocket now instead of the one batter loogie we got the pocket loogie where yeah. you're looking for the the lefty righty lefty sequence in the lineup and i think there will always i think there will still always be that there are just too many too many good left-handed hitters in the middle of a lineup that you're not going to have someone in your bullpen to face that matter mm-hmm. yeah all right all right well uh, we can end there that'll do it for today you can support effectively wild on patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild the following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks daniel heller sean o'neill tim morton joe camarada and jmad thanks to all of you you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we will be back with one more episode before the end of this week. Talk to you then. 
don't we do don't. the same drugs no more we don't do this we don't do the same drugs do the same drugs no more we don't we do the same drugs no more we don't do the we don't do the same drugs no more we don't do the we don't do the